This episode of Sherlock from Adler to Amberley is dedicated to the memory of Una Stubbs who passed away on the 12th of August this year. Una will be remembered for her part until Death Do Us Part in the 1970s, for her part as Anne Sally in Wesel Gummidge, which is where I first came across her, from the Cliff Richard film Summer Holiday, and of course for Mrs Hudson in the BAFTA award-winning television series Sherlock. Una Stubbs was magnificent in the role of Mrs Hudson, which is at best a bit part in the actual series itself, in the original canon. She personalised that, she brought such great warmth and a tremendous amount of comedy, which can only really be pulled off by a truly magnificent actress. What appears more natural in the series is the very scene where we see her for the first time. She opens the door to 221B Baker Street and she hugs Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock. You can tell immediately that hug is genuine. She's known Benedict since he was four years old as she worked with his, his mother, Wanda Ventham, who of course is also in the series. The Sherlock world will mourn Unistubs this month and forever. She's a magnificent actress and we'd like to send our condolences to her family and fans. Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. A recap of The Adventure of the Musgrave Ritual by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes begins the story uh, with an aggrieved Watson next to him. Watson is unhappy about his level, the great detective's level of cleanliness and of his um, inability to destroy papers from previous cases. Watson admits to him that he too is um, is not the tidiest of men, um, being a full bohemian and the medical man, but there are times when he gives himself gracious airs and he decides one day to tell Holmes when they're both quite bored together that they might employ the next two hours cleaning up the place and making it a bit more habitable. Um, Holmes agrees to this, and uh, although a little ruefully, and goes into his room where he brings back a very large silver box with him, or a box at least, um, Holmes can sorry Watson can already see that within that box there is there's papers um, with red tape around them previous cases, and Holmes teases him by saying if you would uh, if only you knew the cases that were in here Watson you'd rather I was emptying this box rather than filling it with other data. It works and Holmes tells him about uh, gives him a, a bag of what is basically just like metal and wood and says you know what do you think of that and uh, and he says well. Nothing, of course. And he says, well, that's actually something to do with the Musgrave ritual. Now, Watson says already that he's heard him mention this once before. And because it's a past case, and it seems to be the time for past cases, because, of course, we've just had the glorious Scott, um, they sit down and have a nice old chat about the Musgrave ritual. Holmes takes up the story by saying that he, after the glorious Scott, he decided to uh, live by his wits, as he tells Reginald Musgrave later on, and uh, he takes up premises in Montague Street, which I think is where John Lennon was arrested for possession of marijuana, which he claims was Jimi Hendrix. Uh, years later, it's right next to the British Museum anyway, and I imagine that's where he went there to conduct his own studies, which is the place for scholars to go, still is today, actually. Um, and then he was called upon uh, by uh, Reginald Musgrave, who seems to be an MP, which I didn't realise until I'd reread the story, 
um, as well as looking after a large estate called Hellstone. Um, Musgrave says to him uh, that uh, you know he's a very busy man. Obviously, he's got a great deal to do, but they, they, uh, he's happy to see that Holmes is doing well. Although Holmes isn't, he's not financially um, assured by, by any stage at this point. Uh, and he um, he says that you know I wonder if you can help me because we've got a bit of an issue going on at Hillston at the moment. So he then tells a story of his butler called Richard Brunton, who was a very very sort of debonair. Um, gifted, intelligent man played a, a, a bit of a mensch. I think the word is he uh, played all the instruments, played several languages, and it's a bit of a wonder why he became. Uh, he seems to have spent twenty years in the service of Reginald Musgrove. I must say he's a bit dusty, despite being young. He's a bit aloof. He um, he then states that one that um, Brunton's main problem is the fact that he's a bit of a Don Juan. He does like the ladies and. Uh, he was married but was widowed, and then he became even worse after that. He took up with Rachel Howells, who's the maid, uh, of a fierce Welsh temperament. We will be returning to that. and um, uh, But then he threw over for Rose Tregellis, uh, which meant that Rachel lost her mind a bit and had brain fever for a while. One night... Um, Musgrave foolishly takes um, a coffee, cafe noir, <laughs> a big black coffee to bed, um, and of course can't sleep. So um, he gets up in the middle of the night, tries to find the book he's left in the billiard room, and um, is astonished to find that Brunton is leaning over um, a piece of paper, studying it intensely with his head in his hands. Um, I don't quite understand this, but Musgrave, Musgrave is furious with him at this because he's found something called the Musgrave Ritual, um, which I'll discuss with Janet in, in, in the programme, in the show, we, he immediately sacks him, immediately sacks him, and says, no, no, you know, you betrayed our trust, I don't understand why. Um, you must go in the next day, and um, just because he's very good at what he does, and he's genuinely shocked by this, Brunton um, bargains with him and says, can I go in a month? He says, no, you can go in a week. So he's leaving, and um, three days later, um, Brunton, in fact, disappears. Musgrave says to... Um, Rachel, you know, where has he gone? I don't think I'm very well. He sends her to bed because she's a bit hysterical. Said, I don't, and she said, well, he's gone. And she starts cackling. And he's completely disappeared. But then a few days later, when Rachel is clearly practically out of her mind, um, she too disappears. And um, uh, they, fo- they follow the footsteps down from the window, which she escaped from, uh, down to a, a mere, a lake. Um, and they drain it thinking the body will be there, but it's actually a, a box of linen. It's a, it's a linen bag with lots of wood and metal in it. Holmes is baffled by this, but he thinks, OK, I'm not going to come down and find out what this is. Then he finds out what the actual ritual is and says, you know, this, this, that's important. That is definitely significant. And Musgrave says, well, I'm not quite sure why it is, although we just bring it with him, which is quite strange. Um, that uh, So they go down. They go down to Helston together, and they read out, again, they read out the... Um, uh, the ritual itself, who shall it be? I'll read it out during the show. Um, what it is, it's actually stolen by T.S. Eliot as well. Borrowed, shall we say. Um, and they go through the ritual itself. You know, they, they work out the trigonometry of, of, of the tree, of the, of the oak, of the elm, the shadow wonder, all that sort of thing. And they find that it leads to a paving stone within the house, which leads to an old cellar. Why Musgrave hadn't realised that in the past when he tried to find Brunton, it wasn't the best search he ever made if he's missed his own cellar, then um, people can hide in cellars and get stuck in them. And the, in, in it, they find um, it's just the cellar's just big enough to carry one person, and the person that is Richard Brunton, the butler. He is dead there. Don't know how he died. I imagine it wasn't particularly nice. Um, Home seducers immediately that he the the stone which they held the door open with is too big for Brunton to do it on his own, and he got Rachel Howells to help him. Uh, he then deduces that obviously Rachel Howells um, is a bit annoyed with him, clearly because he's thrown her over for another, and that he decides to she decides to lock lock him in there, and he dies. She goes a bit mad, and then she runs off herself. The Musgrave ritual itself, they determine, is um, once they've looked. Um, once they examine the bag of linen, uh, they deduce that it's, uh, it's coins and part of a crown from the reign of Charles I, and that he um, who, who shall come was Charles II, so it's actually the crown of England. Why Reginald Musgrave would be, uh, his ancestors would be chosen to keep that uh, and put the ritual in such a strange place is beyond me, frankly. Um, but that 
is the Musgrave ritual. And it's the welcome back to Janice Wilson. Janice joined us for the discussion on the man with the twisted lip. That was well over a year ago. The world's gone mad <laughs> since then. So how have you been, Janice? How, how, you, how are you bearing up with all this? Um, well, I'm bearing up in a cloister just like everyone else. I don't yeah. go anywhere, but I do have my books around me, so I'm okay. Well, what's it, well cause I know you're in Maryland, so has, has it been any different from anywhere else in America? Do you have any different sort of lockdown procedures? or? Well, no. Um, the East Coast and the West Coast have more people who have been vaccinated, and okay. the government is more interested uh, in imposing restrictions. Now, Baltimore, where I am right now, recently lifted the mask requirement for indoors, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it reimposed. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've said, I don't want to make this show too political or anything, but when we did the blue car book, my mate Paul Edwards, um, who was on that show, who I'm going to be talking to after this call, in fact, um, uh, he's sort of one, like an NHS practitioner for the Northwest. And I, I think we may be having another lockdown here before too long, because even though they've lifted restrictions, the numbers are soaring again. But they're also saying that that, that was always going to happen when you redu- when you lift the you know the restrictions and what have you. But uh, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows, to be honest, still. You, of course, mean in England, because in Wales, we well, still... Well, of course, yeah. It's completely different, Yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that every single time that uh, Boris Johnson makes a comment about something about restrictions, uh, some Welsh MP always says, remember, that's you, not me. (laughs) (laughs) We're miles behind. We don't do that sort of thing. Um, Well, we've moved on to the Musgrave ritual, and it's a bit of a strange section, I think, in the entire um, canon of short stories, because we get to reminiscent stories one after the other which is really strange. And Janice asked a while ago if she could do the Musgrave ritual. Um, Nick, who did the Gloria Scott with us, said he wanted to do the Musgrave ritual as well. Um, so I'm assuming, Janice, that you like this story. I adore this story. It has really? so many juicy tidbits. Really? I've got a bit of a strange relationship with this story. I, I, I re- Normally what happens when we do these shows, I, if I've got any sort of prejudice against the story, not, not massively, I'd rather prefer some over the others. I love The Dance of Men. Uh, I'm not that keen on John's favourite story, Case of Identity. Um, I will automatically um, read the story and think, oh, do you know what, that's not as bad as I thought it was. I still think the story ends really abruptly, and I think that's, that's always put me off it a bit, and I don't know why. But, but, but we'll get into all this. What, what is it in particular? Uh, is, it, is it, you know, is it the um, homes at Watson at home being scruffy men, being men, in fact, in general, and being untidy? Or is it the well, fact that it's, my it's a... my favourite thing about it is the delicious riddle that it solves. Yes. But from the standpoint of being a writer, I love it because it very deftly reveals character of Holmes. And it's also a frame story, which is a story within a story. And I've been a big fan of those since I read Wuthering Heights, which is actually told by the housekeeper. Yeah. So I enjoyed this story very much. And in fact, it was Emily Bronte's birthday yesterday, the day after we, we record this story because I didn't know it was the same birthday as um, Kate Bush who is of course the world's biggest Emily Bronte fan there we go we, we, we've wandered slightly into Emily Bronte territory there for a second I I, I, I like the I, I don't know I quite like the fact that the two stories are together because I think he's sort of done that on purpose to, to show that there was life before Watson and there's lots of like tantalizing little trinkets about you know here's the cases wrapped up in ribbon or whatever in this big box of his and he says, you know, there's treasure here, Watson, and what have you. And just to show that, you know, that there was life before his, uh, his biographer come to glorify him. Do you think that's an element of it? Well, that's an interesting point, because one of the character details that I think it reveals about Holmes is that he is not nearly so modest as he would have us believe. Oh, God, no. <laughs> he has chided Watson on many occasions for being his biographer yep. and for, for authoring his annals, as Sherlock calls it in this particular story. Yep. But 
when he is telling this to Watson, it is obviously a story that took place before the two men ever met. Yes. He specifically recommends that Watson write a story about it. Yeah, which he, which he criticizes him for in any other story. Exactly. Uh, he even says at one point, there, there is much to deride about your writings, Watson, but though I must say, you know, yeah, but he, he can never compliment them. There's always a little bit of a really sort of tone every time they come up, even though they, you know, it's, it's, and he even hints in this story, in fact, that he's given them plenty of work. He's, you know, because he's being glorified. The work is coming in now. He's getting paid and what have you, because um, I think when he moves to, to, to Montague Street, the, the money wasn't coming in. Incidentally, I'm going to use this opportunity to say, in the recap, I said that Montague Street was where Jimi Hendrix lived and where John Lennon was arrested. That's Montague Square. And I think at the second I ended the recording and sent it off um, to our producer, John, in Kansas, I thought, oh, that's, oh, that's, I've got that wrong. So sorry about that. It's definitely not the same place. But when he moves to Montague Street, it, it's um, it reminded me in many ways of The Engineer's Thumb, where Victor Hathaway says, um, I had this practice, I had you know all this talent, but I wasn't really given an opportunity to do anything with it. It's also that a brief mention of that in the resident patients as well, uh, with Percy Trevelyan, who who you know sets up a practice and he says for the first few months there was nothing to do. It was all very quiet. I've got all this talent, but until you get regular people coming in to deal with you, then you don't get a practice. And I thought that uh, and anything to, to do with young Sherlock is always fascinating. But I thought that was quite the idea because I think many people just think that he's, he's successful immediately. Because of the well, glorious. I think it's important happy. to note that this is only Holmes' third case. Third, yeah. But he's already brilliant and using his deductive reasoning to solve cases. But but he but he needs the bodies through the door first, and of course, famously, he throws them out if they're not interesting enough. When he can be, he can fall to be a bit more selective uh, after Watson, because obviously his name is made, and you know. It's got to be right. particular outre and what have you for him to be interested in it at all. But at this point, he's, I mean, it sounds to me like when when Musgrave comes to see him, he's genuinely elated that A, it's an interesting story, but B, that it's work. Because we know what happens to him when he hasn't got work. Yes, he specifically says that he has begun to live by his wit. By his wit, yeah. There's a lovely little hint at that uh, Leslie Klinger puts in, in the annotated. That's his way of basically saying, look, I get paid now. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. And there, there is another story. I forget where it appears, but he is offered money for his services, and he accepts that money and says, "I am a poor man." That's the Priory School. Well, he's not a poor man. Later on, when we no. get doing better, he's doing quite well. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. He says that. The he end. does have to share lodgings. Yeah, he, he he says that at the end of uh, the primary school to ba Baron Beverly, is that his name? Um, he says, he says, you know, I'm uh, thank you, I am Sherlock, I am, I am a poor man, but I think that's because it's five thousand pounds, which is about two years' salary or something like that <laughs> that he's going to get in one go. Um, I love the fact that I take it we've all been students here. John, were you a student? Have we lost John? I, I was indeed a student, yes. So you lived in a student household. Did you live in with other men? Well, no, I, I, I never actually. Um, uh, I lived at home uh, when I was okay. I, I went to uni locally. I went to Swansea Uni, so. Uh... Okay, well, I, I like the fact that two men approaching middle age, living together, uh, even though they've got a housekeeper, that house is scruffy, and it's not just because I don't. Think, I don't think it's just because you know Holmes's odorous chemical experiments or anything like that. I like the fact that Watson admits that he's untidy as well. I really like that. I There's one thing I would understand, where, where Watson's on about the rough and tumble of Afghanistan making him untidy. Yeah. Surely, he was on a military campaign. Surely they'd be, you know, neat. I know they were, you know, roughing well, that struck me as well. Um, clearly, Holmes has a very orderly mind and can take facts and just put them in the right places to put the puzzle together. But he's such a slob in his home yeah. that even a veteran of a war in Afghanistan can barely tolerate it. <laughs> how, besides, how does one actually settle in and enjoy a good book by the fire when one's housemate 
is shooting the letters V R into a wall. I mean, that could be unsettling for a lot of people. I think if I live with somebody who regularly shots a gun at a wall, I think I might consider another accommodation. I, th I think that I think that might be too much, even for my bohemian soul. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I love any story which shows Holmes and Watson at home. And it, what's really clear as well is that they're genuine friends. Like I like the the, the little chiding where uh, where Holmes says, you know, you know, do you want you, you want to hear about the Musgrave ritual? But but surely you you can't tolerate all this untidiness, Watson. No, we haven't got time to sit down and talk about one of my greatest cases. And Watson, yes. of course, is champing at the bit. Thing I, I really like that. I think that shows so much about both men. That's is a it? clear example of Watson getting played. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because Holmes is stalling for time. Anything but having to bring in a backhoe to clear away all that detritus. Yeah. I, I, I think that's just that's such a tremendous insight into them both because i mean because arthur conan doyle sorry sir arthur conan doyle could basically just say um they he found the papers again he found like the, the bag of trinkets which is pretty much what it is um and then he told him about the story but no he's building no let's have a little let's take let's let's take let some air out of this and say let, let's just show you know these two at this point they are friends and it let's also show that we've just seen how holmes in the previous story um, was told um, by Justice Trevor that this should be your life. This is what you should do. And this is the next stage along. Um, it's a bit annoying that we don't see what the second story was. But um, this brings us to the fantastic um, litany of lost stories. in the, And I think that's what makes this story. I think that might be my favourite of the whole story, which, of course, doesn't involve the story. But the whole, you know, um, Rigoletti and the abominable crutch, you know, <laughs> all that sort of thing. There's um, a urge to there, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, second. He describes his other cases. Yeah. In a way that is similar to what Watson would have called them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, actually, John, have you have you got the uh, the text of hand? What what are the ones that uh, he mentions? I know there's the abominable um, wife. Yeah, so we have the aluminium crutch. Yes. Um, the case of Vanbury the wine merchant. Yes. Uh, the adventure of the old Russian woman. Uh, Ricoletti of the clubfoot and his abominable <laughs> wife. Um, oh, the, and the Tarleton murders. The Tarleton murders, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's just... Because he's done it before, because he's mentioned he mentions a case of Mary Sutherland and then gets up to it, doesn't he? Or does he do it the other way around? I can't remember now. Where he'll talk about something that's happened and then the next story is that story or a few stories along. But I love the fact he's going to think, let's just... And you're right, actually. He announces them as titles of stories rather than, oh, that murder that happened in 78 or something like that. It's like, but you know, I think that the, the fact of the publication of a story after it's been referenced in a previous story yeah. shows Conan Doyle's brilliance for marketing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is coming, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously we are going to do something at some point about, about the, um, the unpublished stories, but um, I, I think the train cormorant is still going to be my favorite. And also uh, the one about the parsley melting in the butter, um, which I can't remember what story that's from now, but that's, uh, uh, that's yeah. And, um, uh, solved by Homer's winding up a watch. That's another one as well. And uh, I, I, it, it, you're right. It, it absolutely it is marketing, isn't it? It's sort of you know, if you hang on a bit and you think that's interesting, how is he going to solve that? Then that's coming up. Oh, by the way, it isn't. And I think I think that's so well done. Um, let, let's move on to Mr. Musgrave then. Um, it's another old friend of Holmes's. We've just had one with uh, Victor Trevor, and they're not friends. But I think it's very brave that, um, well, I don't suppose they're friends still at this point when he relates a story again, but I think it's very brave that he does him down a little bit, Holmes. He says, you know, he came across as aloof. And, you know, he said, I, I liked him, but he did come across a bit as aloof and um, and sort of, you know, he had airs and graces. But I think that's just because he was trying not to be, you know, a member of the class that he's clearly from. It um, seems to me that this is a case of, the pot questioning the color of the kettle. Well, exactly. Exactly. You've just described yourself, Mr. Holmes. 
that's exactly what you've done. You're trying not to be sort of aloof and a bit superior to everybody else, and you just miss by a long, long way. You're very, very aloof. I, I think that's a really interesting. Um, again, we, we keep coming. John and I keep coming back to the sort of the class system in all this, and uh, about the really strange moment in the um, uh, the noble bachelor where um, he meets a member of the gentry who's clearly revolting and he calls him sir and bows to him and yet he's rude to the king in the scandal of Bohemia. And on this one, there's definitely a class system going on, I think. Musgrave is because he owns Hurlston, because um, he, I think he mentions he's an MP as well, which I didn't know until I reread it. He says, I'm the member for my district. And he's a little bit sort of, I will play the inferior card here because of the class system, but not overly so. Would you agree with that? I would say so. Uh, the truest point about the class system in this story, it seems to me, is the fact that Brunton the butler is extremely well educated speaks several languages, is very gifted at music, and yet he's a butler. Yeah. And as such needs to be assessed in a different way when it comes yes. to crime. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think the character of Brunton, I, sh I should explain that um, we all had a chat online while we were planning to do this. And um, Janice, you said to me straight away, Brunton got what he deserved. What, why so? Well, I'm not especially sure he does. For, especially if you are of the mindset of people that read Conan Doyle. Yeah. Because I must admit, I don't entirely, I'm not entirely sure what his crime is. Because the, the big line for this for me is obviously he sacks, he sacks him immediately. He's sucked. The second he is sacked, 20 years gone, you're out the door the next day. And yet then he says um, about, about the ritual, we were at no pains to hide it. So I don't quite understand why he's gone so furious when there's just a piece of paper in the library. I I think in that bureau he must have had pornography hidden. Um, must have had Victorian pornography hidden, and he thought that uh, Brenton discovered it, and that's why he's freaked out about actually looking at what he's looking at. Well, to me <laughs> it came across as the a breach of the Victorian norm of servants knowing their place. Yeah. And Brunton specifically says that he has been thinking of himself beyond his station yeah. and admits that that's a bad thing for him to do, but begs for mercy so that he can preserve his good name and appear not to have been fired. But for some, I think that in Victorian society, if my readings have been interpreted correctly, one expects so much from people because they live in one's house Yeah. that even the tiniest breach would not only be a bad thing to do, it would wound the homeowner. It would be a personal affront, just as Brunton hurt the feelings of the housemaid. He also hurt the feelings of the man who has given him food and shelter. I, I don't know. I don't entirely see what the crime is, though, because he's just, I suppose, if he, would it be different if he'd walked along Brunton, who was in the middle of the afternoon, just happened to be looking at it, you know, without, without a drink in his hand or, you know, skulking around in the dead of night? Would it have been different then? Would he have sacked him still? I'm not entirely sure he would. I think it's just because he, he, he looked like he was doing some backhand work rather than you know, just looking at a piece of paper, which which wasn't any, it didn't mean anything to to, to Musgrave well, at all. Certainly, it was certainly the setting for crime. Yeah, deep in the night and by candlelight. Even though most crime is committed in the daytime, it looked suspicious, and I think that Musgrave was genuinely, personally wounded by this conduct. As for it being a crime. I think technically it would be a crime if he broke into the desk and cabinet to read the papers. But Musgrave admits we never took any pains to hide this yeah. ritual. Because he didn't know what it was. He didn't think it was. And he, he, he says silly at some point. He describes it as silly. 
specifically says it is of no value. Yeah. Could this have been the last straw type thing, though? Because we already know Shakhtar with one of the housemaids. He's then dumped her and he's gone off with the gamekeeper's daughter. He's a bit, you know, he's he's working his way around the house by the sound of it because he's described with a Don Juan. So is it... uh, that, that's right. He is a roué, and that would fly in the face of Victorian norms. Yeah. I think that Musgrave was a little bit embarrassed of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he said he couldn't understand him. Why he being so a man of such talent to being so satisfied with with basically just looking after a fairly snooty young man? Because Holmes is young, isn't he? So Musgrave is just as young at this point, despite being an MP. Um, I, I think there might be. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right, John. I think it's a sort of oh, no, not now what, rather than a, oh my god, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. You've stolen a piece of paper now. You you appear to be reading it. How dare you? Um, so a lot of this is to do then. We think with Rachel, with Rachel House. We think that that we think that might be the the, the final straw. And then he's waiting for one more thing after Rachel Hiles, and that's it. That, now you're gone. That's your lot. Well, that's, I agree, because Musgrave seems to have had affection for Rachel. He was very concerned about her illness. Yeah. It wasn't go back to work. It was go to bed. Don't get out of bed. Stay in bed. Get better. Rather and he than, provided a nurse for her. Yeah. which at, at some expense, you'd think. Yeah, I think so. John, it's the big question for you. Is she the only Welsh person in the stories? Um, well, isn't the one the one of the detectives is often portrayed? Yeah, tell me, tell me, Jones. You'd assume it'll be yeah, well. Yeah, well. Jones yeah. is. Yeah. 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 And um, I've been chiding John all week with talk of um, the Welsh temperament, slightly unhinged. Uh, <laughs> We're a passionate race. We're passionate. You're exactly race. right because Musgrave said specifically that she Twice. was a good girl. But she was Welsh. She was Welsh. Imagine <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, passionate and you know, given to brain fever and what have you. I, th- I think it, it's it's. I think it is the only time that there's a significant Welsh um, link in this. And, and again, I always come back to the Radio Four adaptations. I love the fact that the, the great Clive Merrison is also Welsh, and therefore, when they cover this story, he does it that little bit of little Welsh accent, which is really nice. I really like that. On, on the other hand, I, I Stephen Fry's attempt at a Welsh accent in his uh, in the Audible recordings is just atrocious. How how Asian is it? I love Stephen Fry, but his Welsh accent made me cringe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I too love Stephen Fry, and being American, I don't know a great deal about the Welsh, because being an American, I assume that there are no other people in the world but Americans. Yes, of course. So we don't trouble to learn. But I can tell you that John Cleese, speaking of his dear friend Terry Jones, said that he had explained to Jones that the Welsh were put on earth to do little menial tasks for the English. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I'd like to point out that I will be lost without John, and John's role in this podcast is nothing like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's nothing like reduced to the reduced below my status. Well, let's just put this: the, the, the English had to build a ring of castles around Wales in order to control us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as John knows, I used to live in South Wales at all. And if if I didn't have my own accent, I'd have a South Wales accent because it's fantastic. Um, I, I just love the fact that they've got. He's gone straight for the stereotype of Welsh, slightly unhinged, very very passionate. Um, uh, this leads me to, to my next question, really, and it's the big one for me, other than did Brunton do anything wrong? Is it murder? Does Rachel kill him? She does kill him, but without touching him. Um, let me put on my lawyer's hat for yes, that. Yes, I was going to say, that's why you're here, Janice. <laughs> um, oh, I thought it was just my stunning personality. No, 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 we need the oh, legal she, re- uh, reading, please. The worst you can get her for is manslaughter. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because she didn't put her hands on him. There was not a single mark of violence anywhere on the man. No. He was found dead in a little cellar cubicle with his head leaning against the box that he'd been digging into trying to find a treasure. Yep. But this is a man who abused the love and trust of a young woman. 
dumped her, and then when he finds he cannot get to the treasure by himself, is so egomaniacal that he goes and asks her to help him uncover it. For a clever man, he hasn't been particularly clever there, has he? <laughs> no, I don't think so. That's why I said he got it. He got what he had coming. Yeah, I, th- I think I think he might have gone a bit too much on the old trust there, and that she's over it, and you know, surely she didn't think that we were going to get married, really, which is what tends to happen in these stories. Um, there's a little element of the scandal of Bohemia in this as well, obviously, where the man thought he was because he was so powerful, and because the wedding was being called off, and what have you. That uh, um, you know, surely she couldn't take it seriously, and he's thrown her over the again the magnificently named Dawn Tregellis, and I think there's a Tregellis in the Devil's Foot as well, because as we know all now, he did like to recycle names. Maids do tend to be called Aggie or Annie a lot, and there's plenty of Victorias um, and Harriets and Violets. Um, I I think it's a strange one because the 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 person who genuinely moves this story more than anybody else, is the only person we don't meet. Well, we actually, we don't meet Brunton, but he gets dialogue. And I think in many ways, this is Rachel's story, because without her, then Musgrave isn't going to go to Montague Street and meet Holmes. And I like the fact that this, this, in technically, in technically in these sorts of these times, almost the smallest character is the most important one. I do like that element of this story. We do see real suffering on her part. Yeah. She is heartbroken. She is physically and mentally depleted. She is referred to almost as a ghost of her former self. Her eyes are said to be black and sunken. And then when Musgrave sends her to find Brunton, she says, the butler is gone. And she collapses against a wall in hysteria. Yeah, she laughs. It's hilarious. And then, but it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not amusing. It's just wild in her mind. I think. Exactly. Yes, I'm, I didn't take it. When I read it. I didn't take it to be the fact that she was amused by it. Although it would have been consistent with her motivation and circumstances. Yes. Yeah. She's traumatized as much as anything. By what she's done. Because that's a man she loved. And she's killed him. And she knows he's dead. And she knows that she's lying to her employer. Who she clearly gets on with. And she can't hold everything in her head at the same time. And she. But Holmes does not directly accuse her. Not just because she can't be found. He definitely says. That the props that were keeping the lid open to the cavern could have slipped out. And that yeah. is that is possible because it was a very heavy thing and it could the weight could have pushed onto the props and pushed them out. And certainly Rachel could not open it by herself. Yeah. If Broughton couldn't, she couldn't. And what was she going to do? If she went and asked for help, She'd be way more than sacked. She'd be in prison. Yeah. For a, for robbing her employer. Yeah, she's an accomplice. Yeah, she she would be an accomplice straight away after this. Yeah, and uh, even even though I keep coming back to the fact that Musgrave genuinely hasn't got a clue what he's got, and um, so maybe there will be an element of. He wouldn't be arrested for, for theft because there would be no theft, because there's no nothing valuable as far as he's concerned, which is which I think is an interesting slant to it too. Although, uh, as Leslie points out in the in the annotated Sherlock Holmes, that if um, if he attached no importance to the documents with the catechism on it, why does he bring it to Montague Street? And I, I suppose it's because you know he knows Holmes and Holmes can recognise someone's you know occupation by this thumb and things like that things so I might as well bring it but I think that was I thought that that struck me as quite strange at the time as well why does he bring it when he thinks there's nothing important to it well he he knows that it's linked to the disappearance of two human beings yeah so uh, he knows that Holmes is a genius he certainly saw enough of him at university to figure that out but 
he wouldn't want him to go in blindfolded. He wanted to help him as much as he could. And then that's another thing that I love so much about this story is not just that it shows the genius of Holmes in how he figured out what to, what he was looking for and where it was hidden, but it also brings in that fascinating part of English history with the yeah. death of Charles the First. Um, my only criticism of the Charles the First section is does he leap to that very quickly? There's no there's no sort of slight. As you normally would in a story, there'd be sort of like, you know, hint of a clue there, hint of a clue there, hint of a clue there. Aha, there's the chain. There's all the strings. I've tied them all together, and this is what happened. You might have well been there, Holmes. You know, that sort of thing. He literally says, oh, by the way, this is Charles I and Charles II. Well, you're quite right. There are a lot of flaws in the story. If you want to uh, attack it just from pure logic. Yeah. Example, Holmes deduces by using geometry, where the shadow of the fallen elm fell and where the treasure was hidden. Yes. And in doing so, the ritual specifically says that it was stepped north by 10 and by 10, east by 5 and by 5, south by 2 and by 2, west by 1 and by 1, and so under. But there's no accounting for the fact that 200 years ago, arguably, people had smaller strides. Yes, true. And might not have reached the same location as the well-nourished homes did. Yes. It's also noteworthy to me, talking about Holmes's ego, that he was completely confident that if Broughton could figure it out, he could figure yes. it out. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I really like that. He even says himself, I, I assessed the man's intelligence and I re- thought it was really up to speed. Little pat on his own shoulder. He was almost as good as me, you know. That, that's what I read from that. Uh, it was one of the job. And it's an interesting point you make because um, we're, we're all Jack the Ripper people here on, the, on, this, uh, on this podcast, um, where, of course, um, we know that the murderer, the Whitechapel murderer, um, wasn't a particularly tall man, but he was average height for the time. And that, yes. um, and also that I, re- I read somewhere there's been a study about the fact that people walked quicker. So he would have got from Burner Street to Mitre Square slightly quicker than we would today because people were used to walking and they were used to walking quickly. So, you know, so there is a time, and that, that's 130 years ago. So that's um, 133 this month. And um, there's, but there is a, a, a great deal in that time. And, and and Holmes is tall, isn't he? He's 6'1 or something. He's over six foot. He's a tall, yes. thin, athletic man who's um who and strong as well, because that, that's mentioned he's peculiarly strong in the fingers, he says at one point. Um so th- that would be uh um, presumably the, the old Musgraves were landed gentry who didn't mind a bit of port. So it's very difficult to judge, you know, who would have been more attuned to the actual ritual itself. And I don't think it would have been Holmes. I'm I, I'm wondering, you know, how, how the tree, the oak tree hasn't grown in 200 years. There is that too. The, the elm as well. That was yes. 10 years for the story. And unless, of course, there's some kind of like stipulation in like the, the documents of the house that say the, these trees need to be kept at this height or something. It's... Just in case you get a very, very clever butler one day. And you need to find out why his body's been found in a cellar that no one has looked in, even though they did a really full search for Brunson when he disappeared. And that's they the other thing. It is this heavily renovated house in yes. 300 years. Has no one thought, I wonder what's under this big stone with like <laughs> with a handle on it here? <laughs> that has been deliberately kept away from the rest of the house in what is potentially a very, very dangerous area and not the sort of place you want to get trapped in. Well, the Musgrave family went to the trouble of creating this series of questions and answers, specifically so that the treasure could be found. Yeah. Smart as those people are, it never occurred to them that a tree might either die <laughs> from natural causes or be felled to put wood in the fire. Yeah. And then they go and they forget to tell the heirs what the stupid ritual is all about. Yeah, 
Well, that's the issue. I think they're expecting it to happen within a couple of years rather than... Yeah, possibly, years, yeah. Isn't it? You know, they, they just died before he actually passed on, you know, what this bit of paper is all about. Yeah, I'm I'm bound to point out here that there's the similarities with this and one of my favourite books of all time, which is Masquerade by Kit Williams, which is I don't know if you remember this, Janice. I don't know if it was, if it was big news, but um, Kit Williams was it, it is an artist, and he, he, he in the early '80s he um, he created well he, he made a gold hair like a hair trinket thing made of solid gold, and he buried it underground. Deep oh in- yes. Deep I know the story. Yeah, so deep, so it wouldn't be found by metal detectors, and the whole book masquerade is clues about where the site is. And he said it would be discovered by either an Oxford don or a very bright ten-year-old child. <laughs> and of course, what happened was after two years, he got so sick of people saying, "Is it here?" No, and he, he like had a photocopied answer of no, it's otherwhere. He said um, that he had to do an extra clue which pretty much says, it's here, by the way. This is how you <laughs> solve it. It's here. And Look it's, under the X. Yeah, it, it, it's literally, yeah. And um, and that's the same sort of, you know, by the, it's it actually, it was found because it's, if you're standing under St. Catherine's Cross in Ant Hill Park, on the day of the equinox at noon, the type, the touch where, the bit where the top of the statue, um, the cross touches the earth, it's buried under that bit at, no, at noon at the equinox, so it's twice a year. And in fact, I went there last year on the equinox at noon to find it, to find where the spot was. And that does make me think about that as well. And you're right when you say, you know, he was John when you, when you said you know, he's supposed to do this in a couple of years, not you know, three hundred years, two, three hundred years later, whatever it was. Um, and I think that was what worried Kit Williams as well. Because he didn't think, well, my God, please find it. I don't want to go through all that and and not anyone find it. So you know, they 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 put more clues on. So maybe that's why you know the catechism was so unhidden shall we say because they thought no someone has to find this we don't well, want this to be mystery forever i'd like to point out that one of musgrave's ancestors was a courtier of charles the second yes now the crown was being held for charles the second yep why didn't musgrave just hand it over <laughs> save us all this trouble if anyone hasn't guessed, Janice is a member of the legal profession <laughs> <laughs> and has absolutely no truck whatsoever with elaborate clues. <laughs> just do it. Um, Leslie, again, in, in the annotators' homes, makes the great point of um, how on earth are they allowed to keep it? It's the crown of England. You can't just say, just give it to this posh man over there. Why? Because he's written this really nice sort of section of a, a call and answer response thing that no one's going to quite understand. And it's going to be kept in a cellar somewhere. How has he been allowed to, to do that? Why wouldn't it be kept somewhere else? I suppose because it's the, it's it's a, almost the um, the dissolution of the monarchy. But at the same time, it seems a bit strange to just give it to some man. And why was the crown of England in such ratty condition? Yeah. That it fell apart and the stones dropped out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you know, presumably it's meant to be the crown of Henry VIII, which when you yeah. know the um, um, Cromwell stuff was meant to have melted down. Um, so I suppose you know, it could have been disguised as something or partially destroyed or something like that. But uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 that's the big thing, isn't it? It's the, why are they allowed to keep it? It doesn't make any sense. No. And no. there's some kind of a conspiracy. Yeah. And knowing that it was the crown of England and the stones had already fallen out or could be easily removed, why didn't, if if he had taken ownership of of it, why didn't Musgrave just make some use of those stones and the gold? Maybe he did. Maybe he did something else with them. They do seem a bit of a strange family. Yeah. Yeah, it is also a strange house. It's L-shaped, which I thought was quite strange as well. Oh, oh, that reminds me of something. When, when he's going to go consult, you know, confront Brunton in the library and uh, the ancient weapons in the walls, and he grabs a battle axe. He grabs an axe. The weight of the battle axe. He must have been <laughs> dragged. 
What, what did you do to sort out the burglar? Oh, did you bother with the gun or a knife or, you know, a heavy blunt edge? No, I took an axe with me. An axe! Bad legs at that. The weight on that. You know, yeah. a sword. Grab a sword if you've got a sword. <laughs> <laughs> that's the man that's who was good. easily offended. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> would, you, would, would you go and work for, for Reginald Musgrave? Um, uh, bearing in mind that if he gets a bit angry or gets a bit above himself, he does have an axe, a battle axe, which would take two or three swings just to get, I'd say, to get up to shoulder level anyway. Because I imagine that's quite a heavy thing. He takes an axe. My God, man. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's wrong with you? Um, I, I don't know. It's it's always been. I, I do like the treasure stories, and I do really like the puzzle stories. I mean, the Dancer Man, I think, is 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 practically a perfect story because he's got to solve something there, and you know, he, and and even even in, in in the Glorious Scott where he does the skip code, um, I, I, I like that too. It just it's I think it's always bothered me that he just says straight away, "Oh yeah, yeah, Charles the First. like immediately, like no one's ever thought of Charles the First before, um, and there's no hint of that coming, and I think that's what slightly puts me off the Musgrave ritual. Um, I, I I I think the hint is there in the um the, the, they say the spelling of of the uh of, of the um the catechism yeah. is of that era yeah um, and that's you know that's about that you know it's a spelling in English language was starting to get settled by then so it's probably quite easy to work out you know the spelling by that era if you are an expert in that and presumably hopefully. yeah. Might be because he's an expert in everything, isn't he? Well, almost immediately, yes, he is. Yeah, it seems to me that leaving that clue, I mean, we're talking about the English Civil War. There were people leaving during the English Civil War and people returning. So, the first four lines who was it, he who was gone, who shall have it, he who will come, could have been anybody. People do go off to war and not come back. In, in fact, I suppose in those days it was more presumed that you wouldn't come back. Exactly. Yeah. Especially with someone coming after you with a battle axe. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about the battle axe. I, I, I did make a note at the time. I was just thinking, wow. <laughs> it's like saying I went, I, I, I went to confront the man with a mini guillotine. It just seems incredibly <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I also want to say that the catechism, it's it's a little bit Masonic ritually. Yes. And uh, Colin Doyle loves his Masonic references and allusions. Yeah, he really does. Even though he wasn't, he was a Freemason, but he wasn't that active apparently. So. No. I just think it bears all the hallmarks of, of a classic home story because you've got. Um, uh, obviously, a bit of history thrown in. You've got um, uh, 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 Holmes and Watson in 221B gently ribbing each other, which is really nice. You've got um, uh, an old house, which we, we, we get in the Golden Ponds Nay as well, and we get the big treasure hunt clue. And, and also, Janice, we don't really get a crime other than manslaughter, which looks sort of avoidable in this case. But, it's, but there's no sort of, like, you know, no one's ran off with... Lady blah blah's tiara, or or kill somebody, or for an old debt, or something like that. So it's it's a the only thing I don't. The most interesting for me about it is the fact that he could have put Gloria Scott in, then the Rygate problem or Rygate Squires, the puzzle, sorry, and then put the Musgrave ritual in. He doesn't. He decides to put the two together, as in old homes followed by old homes, and then he's back to Watson again. Well, I mean, there's also a case to be made for attempted robbery. Yes. Uh, Rachel found out that there was gold and stones. Yeah. And she had, they had been handed to her. Yeah. Brunson uncovered them, reached them up to her out of his little confinement, and she took them in a little bag. Yeah. They had been she, taken from where they once was. Yeah. That's right. And she left the house. Yeah. Whether she left the house intending for her former lover to die or not remains to be seen. She had to, she accepted stolen goods, which is a crime, and she absconded with them, which shows her guilty knowledge. Although she is of a passionate Welsh nature, and therefore 
Well, sorry, John. Say, sorry, John. If John was anywhere else, I wouldn't have said that. Don't worry. <laughs> this, this is revenge from for the uh, references to Liverpool and the Stockbrokers Club. Yes, it was. Thank <laughs> you. And I knew this was coming as well. I knew there was a Welsh murderess, but it could be coming up quite soon. Well, yeah, yes, there, there is a case for it because she, they do take away stuff that isn't theirs. That is very much a Musgrave. The Musgraves own it. We don't know how they own it because, frankly, they shouldn't. But um, historically, they own it, and therefore, that is theft. And as for the resolution of what happened with Rachel, Holmes is content to just say, well, I figured she must have left the country. Yeah. Well, if, How? if they decide not to pursue her because they thought that being female, she was so weak-willed that she I, could I'm be totally amazed inspired. As well. In this robbery? Yeah. And only a maid, because that is the, there is the class thing going on here. She's only a maid. She's a woman, uh, which got, and Holmes has his problems with that, obviously. And um, she wasn't particularly well, so they leave it there. But I think most of all, and this is a big Sherlock thing, um, a very, very big family is embarrassed. And we can't have that, Janice. We can't have that family being embarrassed. That's a Never huge forbid. thing. Yeah, we can't do that. They placed their trust in Brunton, and he humiliated them. Yeah. And then he disappears, the maid disappears, and everybody is going to know it. Yeah. And that cannot be allowed. He's been made to look a fool because he's been outwitted by someone who is merely a member of his staff. Exactly. Yeah. I, th I, th I think that's a huge point in this. Um, we're coming up to the hour because we've, we've done the recap as well, obviously. I was going to say, Janice, when, we can, when are we going to hear from you again? But you're going to be our first three-time guest. You're our first returning guest. And we're, you're coming back oh. to a port. You're back with Wisteria Lodge. I am. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it's another old house. <laughs> it's another tale of miscommunication. Uh, but this time we get a secret foreign society as well. So we're going to look forward to that. All right. I appreciate that very much. When do you think that would be? Oh, that's that's, that's a long way away, isn't it? I think the uh, yes. much. that's a fair bit. Just to let people know about what's going on with the podcast, we're pretty much booked up now for ages, aren't we, John? Did we get somebody for Rygate? I think we did. Um, yeah, I, th I think we're booked up until a couple of stories into... Um... Uh, the return, but I'm not 100 sure. Um, I can't remember. I'm just going to have a look now. We've got um, well, I'm, well, I'm going to tell people who we've got coming up. So we've uh, uh, Rygate, we have some for that. We have Tanya coming in for the Crooked Man, Heather Owen from the uh, from the Sherlock Holmes Society of London for the Resident Patient, uh, Davis Stewart Davis is for the Greek Interpreter, uh, Bonnie McBird's coming back for the Naval Treaty, and then we have our special guests for the the final problem and the Empty House. Um, which I'm trying not to jinx, I'm trying to jinx by not talking about it. Dan Smith's going to be doing the Norwood Builder. And the next one we've got free, bizarrely, is one of my favourite ones ever, which is the Dance of Men. So we're, we're going to be booked up for a while. But um, if, if you all need someone to fill in real quickly, I, I'd be happy to do it. But I know a lot of people want to participate in this podcast. Well, that, that's, that's been one of the nicest things about the podcast is people have been like, emailing us now and saying, yes. I'd like, I, I, quite, I, I like the show. I like what you're trying to do, do them all in order. Um, so, yes, we're booked up. So, we'd like to, firstly, we'd like to thank everyone who's been enjoying the show. If you'd like to um, uh, review us anywhere, if possible, then feel free. That'd be quite nice if you could do that. Um, is there anything coming up that we should know about that you're doing, Janice, at the moment? Any, any works that we should uh, be hearing about? I am up to my eyeballs in my second novel. It is going to be about the murder of Karl Marx's youngest daughter. Wow. You've just ticked so many boxes for me there that I'm buying that. If you Google it, you will find out that she committed suicide. Yep. But I have rights as an author. Okay. Well, I'm named after him. So, um, seriously, I am. So, uh, uh, slightly left-wing parents here in Liverpool. Um, so, yes, I'll be, I'll be all over that as well. Well, we'll be back um, to do the Rygate. I still don't know, John. Rygate Squire, Rygate Problem. Rygate, sorry, Rygate Puzzle. Which one are we going with? Because I know it's both. Um, I've always said Squire yeah, myself. It was, uh, it was Rygate Squire in the mem. Rygate Squires in the Strand. Yep. Rygate Squire Singular in the Memoirs. Yep. 
And then, oh, so Squire in the Strand, Squires in the Memoirs, and Harper's Weekly. It was puzzles. So yeah, that's right. So I'm just going to go with. So from now on, we're just going to call it Rygate. So from the Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley podcast, it's been it's got a fourth name of just Rygate. <laughs> That's what it's going to be called. So welcome to Rygate for the next show. Janice, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. It's always great to have you on. Thank you thank for being the first returning guest. And you're going to be the first third um, guest of the podcast as well. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. I would like to thank our hosts at RipperCast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.